Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books and just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means it is time for another book about a president, and this month's president, picking up with the untimely death of Zachary Taylor, is Millard Fillmore, making this book's book, this week's book of the week, Millard Fillmore, Biography of a President, ooh, Sun Reflection, by Robert J. Rayback. The accompanying cocktail is called Conflict and Compromise, which consists of one and a half ounces of tequila, three quarter ounces of melon liqueur, three quarter ounces of lime juice, a half ounce of agave nectar, two slices of jalapeno pepper, and seven cilantro leaves. Very specifically, seven cilantro leaves. So let's do this. Our 13th president was born on January 7, 1800 in Moravia, New York to Nathaniel Fillmore and Phoebe Millard Fillmore. The family was extremely poor. His father was a tenant farmer and the farmlands were not great, so the family kind of actually moved around quite a bit when Fillmore was a child, kind of looking for better opportunities. Nathaniel realized fairly early on that farming was really not a way to get rich unless you actually owned the land and not just rented it, so being a tenant farmer was a shit option, but owning the land could be lucrative. But he didn't want that for his son. He wanted more for his son, and so he set out finding other opportunities for Millard. The first thing he did was place Millard with a local cloth maker, Benjamin Hungerford. Millard hated this work and soon left Hungerford's employment. So Nathaniel then placed Millard with a mill in New Hope, still in the textile industry, but with the manufacturing portion of it. And it, Millard was no happier there. He, he didn't like textiles. He didn't want that to be his life. But the mill in New Hope had close proximity to a library, which Millard bought into. Uh, back then, apparently, it wasn't just open to the public like this. You could buy into it, though, and he did. He used some of his wages from the, the mill at New Hope to buy into a library and start reading. And so he, he to a large degree, was a self-educated man um, and a self-made man, too. I mean, he, he took advantage of the opportunities his father found for him, but he still had to do the work to get there. It wasn't just handed to him on a silver platter. He did not come from money. and Ultimately, when he left the presidency, he was like the first president to not walk into a waiting retirement filled with wealth and luxury. Uh, because he was a servant of the people, and, and I do need to make that clear because there's a whole lot that I disliked about his presidency, and we're going to get into that, obviously. So he bought into this library and read a lot, and he educated himself. Uh, um, I mean, he, he made it his point to basically read a dictionary because every time he found a word he didn't know, he would look it up in the dictionary and then practice it all day. So, smart, right? That's a really good way to go about educating yourself. Oh, God, I can smell the tequila already. If I use too many more of these little melon things, I might actually have to spring for the Midori. But for now, we'll just make do with this. The family eventually moved to Montville, and Nathaniel was able to convince a local judge, Judge Walter Wood, to take Fillmore on as an apprentice, which he did. And Fillmore trained with Judge Wood for about 18 months, teaching school locally while reading the law with Judge Wood, and eventually he left his training with Wood partially as a result of the family moving, partially due to an argument he had had with Wood over uh, some legal advice that Millard Fillmore had offered to somebody else. I'd forget if it was a farmer or a townsman, but whatever. He, he offered legal advice, which was not illegal. He was not, this was not against the law in any way, shape, or form, because it wasn't, it, basically he was acting as like a, um, was it a justice of the peace? 
was that the official term? But he wasn't necessarily acting as a lawyer. It was more like giving his learned opinion. Well, Judge Wood disliked that and wanted Fillmore to promise never to do that again. And Fillmore's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he left with his family and they moved to Buffalo. And when Fillmore reached the age of 21, he studied for and passed the bar exam, was accepted into the New York bar. I have to cut a line here. He, um, once he passed the bar, he set up offices in East Aurora, New York, and married his longtime fiance, Abigail Powers. He had actually met her when he was part of that library group in, um, in, New, in New Hope. And they, they struck up a friendship and eventually became engaged. And they were kind of had this long-term engagement while he got his stuff together and was in a position to marry her which he did on, oh, in 1826. I thought I had the actual date here, but I don't. It was in 1826 that he married her. Supposedly, I can get all the lime juice I need out of this. I feel like I'm not going to. Maybe I'll just be short on lime juice. Theoretically, there's a full ounce of lime juice in a lime. I got about a half an ounce out of this one. Maybe if I use an actual juicer. Oh well. He married Abigail Powers. They had two children, Millard Powers Fillmore and Mary Abigail Fillmore. I am going to cut my thumb off, I swear to God. Oh, I'm so hesitant to actually do this because if I have to touch my eyes, I'm going to end up sobbing with the freaking seven. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> I think so specific. Six, seven. Seven leaves of cilantro. Is that everything? Oh, half ounce of agave nectar. <laughs> Almost forgot the sugar. Fillmore was a fairly accomplished attorney. He had several successful practices, run with friends over the course of several years, well, basically over the course of his, his career all the way up until he became president. And when a practice ended, it was never due to bad feelings or mismanagement or unprofessionalism on anybody's part. It was basically because somebody moved away or other life got in the way and they were unable to participate in the practice anymore. And so he maintained friendships with, these, with his law partners throughout his life. Um, this right here, me getting quiet while I'm actually doing something, is why I'm not like knitting during these videos. I can mostly mix and drink a cocktail, but I have to actually concentrate while pouring out the ingredients. Now, while practicing law, Fillmore took in many p law pupils as clerks, and he really enjoyed teaching. He was quite good at it. And that was kind of a lifelong passion or hobby of his, was learning and teaching. He enjoyed those two things immensely, like sharing that with people. After shade. Double strain means you literally pour it through the strainer. You see I have little holes in the top of the strainer. Through another strainer into your cup. Oh, and that's why I literally right away got a cilantro leaf in there. Good catch, double strainer. Oh, I can still smell the tequila. Oh. The other thing Fillmore was quite good at was politics. And he found his political tribe quite early. I think he started with the anti-Masons. Uh, if you'll recall, wait, did I talk about the anti-Masons during John Quincy Adams? I may have. I don't know. JQA was a long time ago. But the anti-Masons sprang up as a result of a, a murder of a Mason who basically tried to leave the Masons, but he published a tell-all book and the Masons dislike this. Secret societies don't like it when you spill their secrets. And so they killed him. Nobody was ever actually caught and tried for it, but it was widely suspected the Masons did it and an anti-Mason movement swept through the nation. And that was his first party. Shortly after that, he joined the Whigs though, and that was his political tribe. Um, and he stayed with the Whigs pretty much up until the demise of the party. Actually, yes, until the demise of the party. Within, the, and, and he was good at it. 
All right, he was he was kind of to the Whigs what Martin Van Buren was to the Democrats. Okay, he was a mover and a shaker, and he was very adept at maneuvering people into doing and doing what he wanted them to do and being where he needed them to be. However, the Whig Party in New York also had Thurlow Weed, who was to become a lifelong nemesis, politically speaking, basically doing everything he could to thwart Fillmore and stab him in the back politically. And I think politically, Fillmore was probably more likable and more trustworthy. He kind of believed that his word was his bond, and when the Whigs needed the party in Phil Fillmore's district to pull together, Fillmore was able to deliver that based on the strength of his personality and the fact that people trusted him. He was not given to shady dealings and so he was likable and trustworthy. Weed, however, was a newspaper man. Yeah. And much like today, the newspapers cared less about delivering actual news than they did about spin doctoring to their own benefit. There are many lessons to be learned here. It's not awful. It's weird because I can smell the tequila, but I can more taste the melon and the agave nectar. As long as I don't taste the tequila, I can smell it, and that kind of makes, you know, the, the glands back here pucker up in horrified memory, but not bad. All right, I think this is doable. So Weed seriously hated Fillmore, like seriously hated him. And whenever he could, he would champion his own protege, William Henry Seward. And Seward backed Weed's every move, believing that ultimately Weed would place him in the White House. Um, not quite, I think Seward eventually became Secretary of State, but he never made it to the White House. Now, Fillmore, being the apt politician that he was, did run for congressional office and served in Congress from 1833 to 1835, took a small break, and then again from 1837 to 1843, serving as a chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee from 41 to 43. At this point, he decided he was going to retire from politics, and he and his wife returned to Buffalo, where he set about returning to his law practice. Okay. 1848. The Whigs have taken control of New York State, and he's voted into the comptroller of the state of New York, which he was really good at, and in which this position he served until 1849 when he was sworn in as vice president. So 48 to 49, he's serving in this position as comptroller. The 1848 Whig National Convention voted Zachary Taylor as their nominate, uh, nominated Zachary Taylor as a candidate for presidency with Fillmore as his running mate. Now. When Zachary Taylor was nominated by the Whigs with Fillmore as his running mate, it was thought that Fillmore's political experience, and he was quite experienced, would support and bolster Taylor's military experience. Additionally, by running a ticket with somebody from the Deep South, Taylor's primary residence in Louisiana was in Louisiana at this point, and then the Industrial North was represented by Fillmore. It was kind of thought to be this bridge over the rising tensions of the slavery question. More and more, the South was clamoring for secession whenever the North started talking about abolition. Uh, and to this end, the ticket was solid, all right? Taylor, being a Jeffersonian principal, did not seem to think that slavery should be allowed to spread, and allowing California in as a free state would kind of become one of the sticking points of his administration. Fillmore, having grown up dirt poor himself and never owned a slave, believed slavery was evil and was absolutely fine with allowing California to enter as a free state. His overriding ambition, more than anything, was preservation of the Union. And it was thought that his seeking that preservation might temper Taylor's idiosyncratic belief in freedom in California. It's idiosyncratic because Taylor himself was a slave owner. Yeah, gotta love hypocrisy. Now what happened, if you'll recall from last month's book on Taylor, is that Taylor did not want to be bothered with patronage. He was all too happy to delegate the task of who got which posting to his cabinet 
um, who turned out not to be Vice President and able politician Fillmore for advice, but to Thurlow Weed. So the cabinet didn't turn to Fillmore. They were like, though they were all Weed appointees, literally every single one of them had their political backing by his arch nemesis, Thurlow Weed. And Weed filled all the posts available, everything, with people who were toxic to Fillmore and his goals, effectively shutting out Fillmore, leaving him nothing to do but listen to the compromise positions that raged across the Senate floor on the matters of slavery, new states, and territorial expansion. And Fillmore tried several times to meet with the president and explain his positions and what was happening on the Senate floor, but was pretty much stonewalled by Weed's handpicked cabinet members. This, incidentally, answers the question of why Fillmore did not retain Taylor's cabinet on Taylor's death in July of 1850. I, I wondered that last week or last month. I was like, why didn't he just keep the cabinet? I mean, they were all so able, right? They were described as being very able by the last, last month's author, Jack Bauer. Jack K. Bauer, not to be confused with 24. I was like, well, why wouldn't he keep him? Well, this is why. They were his political enemies. They weren't there to help him. They were there to stab him in the back and report on him to weed. And you don't want people like that around you when you are in the White House. I get it. I do. So the Compromise of 1850. Um, this process started under Taylor's administration, but Taylor wasn't really interested in compromise. He wanted things done his way. He wanted California and New Mexico admitted as free states in the Union, skipping the territory steps and going straight to statehood, ignoring the Compromise of 1820, which would have required New Mexico coming in as a slave state. Nice, right? Taylor was not excited by the idea of another compromise, but Fillmore, having nothing else to do, watched every single debate on the Senate floor, which essentially constructed the first omnibus bill with that 1850 compromise, which was introduced by that consummate statesman and longtime Senator Henry Clay. Now Clay has kind of been a political bane to pretty much every sitting president, and he really wanted the presidency, but he never got it. But this was his big act. This was like his last hurrah was this 1850 compromise, which admitted California as a free state, organized the territorial governments of New Mexico and Utah, and banned the slave trade from the District of Columbia. Now that was for the North. The South, for its part, would be placated by toughening the Fugitive Slave Act and allowing the residents of Texas and New Mexico to settle their own boundary disputes and decide the question of slavery for themselves. And this was not popular with everybody, which is why it's a compromise, right? Compromises are rarely popular with everybody who's partake, partaking of them. Most of those in Congress and the Senate saw it as a viable way forward and a means to preserve the Union. Okay, if that's your, your overriding goal, preservation of the Union, compromise is probably a solid way to go. And that it becomes something of a battle cry among both the Whigs and the Democrats that had grown increasingly prone to sectionalism. So there was a section of... The Whigs, who are like, no, abolition only, we're, you know, got to do with slavery, which is commendable. And there was a part of the South that was like, they're not going to tell us what to do. We, we're sovereign states, right? We're, we're part of this union for everybody's benefit, but if it's not going to benefit us, we're going to go and do our own thing. Okay, all right, I, I understand the line. I mean, I don't agree with the rallying cry of, you know, let's keep our slaves, but I could agree with the sentiment of, if this is no longer benefiting us, we should probably just break out and do our own thing. I get that, but um, ultimately the sectionalists in the middle, the Whigs and the Democrats both, pulled through and started pushing for this compromise. Out of curiosity, this sectionalism, this extreme sectionalism, does this sound familiar to anybody? I mean, like maybe a similar shit show is going on today, maybe. 
Like maybe our Congress critters should read a goddamn history book every now and then. While the compromise was not a popular offering, it was getting close enough in the Senate that Fillmore felt duty-bound to advise the president that this might go to a tie-breaking vote, which would be Fillmore's as the president of the Senate, right? And Fillmore, if he was called upon to do so, would vote for the compromise, which he knew Taylor didn't want, but he felt that he was morally obligated to do to preserve the union. Taylor gave no response to this, uh, at least none that was recorded, so I don't know how he reacted to Fillmore's announcement that he would vote for the compromise if pushed to it. And uh, none of it ultimately matters because July 4th, 1850, Taylor, you know, drank the cherries, drank, or, or ate the cherries, drank the cold milk, stayed out too long in the sun, resulting in a fatal, fatal case of cholera. And on July 9th, Fillmore was notified the president had passed and that Fillmore was now president. And little crises started to pop up. While the nation mourned, Texas tried to redraw New Mexico's boundary lines and the crisis over the compromise continued. Fillmore did act decisively. He advised Texas that federal troops would keep the peace. Uh, they better not be invading New Mexico because the federal troops would roll in and roll that shit back. And he urged Congress to pass the compromise. And into this fraught state of affairs, history dropped one Stephen A. Douglas. Oh, Lord. And then there's this asshole who suggested breaking up the ominous bill and passing each section individually. For my part, I'm cool with this. I already feel all bills through Congress should be broken into small, tiny, little bite-sized pieces. I'm talking like three, four pages max, and that shit should be handwritten by the Congress critter, like, like pen and ink. I want them to go old school, because with the vision, invention of computers and typewriters, they've gotten way too big. 3,000-page bills, who reads that shit? Nobody, not even the Congress critters, except for Justin Amash. He read the bills, which is why he basically voted no to everything. And then he retired. Say la vie. I mean, omnibus bills are how Congress critters hide from the public what they're doing in private. So the failure of the compromise resulted in some truly heinous actions being passed by Senate and no doubt contributed to the blackening of Fillmore's name historically. I mean, at least this way, history, with the breaking up the omnibus bill, history at least has a record of how the villains voted. So we know that. And the compromise bill was broken down into five separate pieces of legislation. Fillmore promised that he would not veto any bill that passed constitutionally. And they all passed constitutionally. The Senate, basically being tired of this, passed all of them, which were acceptance of California as a free state, transfer of part of the territory of Texas to a federal government in exchange for taking on Texas's debts from the war with Mexico, division of that territory into New Mexico and Utah territories, prohibition of slave trade in Washington, D.C., and the Fugitive Slave Act. That one is the one that is most galling and nauseating. And it balked in Congress. Right? The Senate's passed it, but the House of Representatives is like, mm, we're good with four of the five, but that Fugitive Slave Act, Congress at this time, or the House of Representatives, excuse me, let me be specific here. The House of Representatives was overwhelmingly run by the Whigs. I mean, they had control, hands down, of the House of Representatives. And so when the Fugitive Slave Act came before them, they were like, ooh, no can do. Because sectionalism be damned, a lot of the Whigs were not for slavery, and a lot of the Whigs were from the North, and they wanted no part of this. But Fillmore stepped in and urged them to pass it in the name of the Union. Ultimately, this too was passed, and the nation rejoiced, believing the Union had been saved rather than what actually happened, which was the delay of civil war for another decade. And that's, that's all they got. Ten years of peace.
And then Fillmore had to actually enact these laws. Now, enacting the laws doesn't just mean signing them, it means enforcing them. And he did. So when marshals approved by southern states tracked down fugitive slaves in Pennsylvania, they sought assistance from a local court to help hold the slaves pending transport. The courts declined, and the locals in Pennsylvania helped the fugitives to keep on running. And when southern marshals attempted to recapture fugitive slaves, uh, William and Ellen Croft from Boston, Massachusetts, it did not go well. The Crofts were kind of feted and celebrated as fugitives in Boston, and when the marshals let it be known that that's what they were there for, Boston immediately rallied and began hiding the Crofts. The South, however, asked Fillmore for troops to enforce the law, and the Fugitive Slave Act, which had been constitutionally passed, was the law. And Fillmore agreed and promised to send federal troops to enforce the law. Which, I mean, yes, he's legally allowed to do. It's the law. And that's the point of the executive branch, is to execute the law as passed. But, I mean, damn, son. No wonder you're looked down on historically. That threat had the desired effect, though. Boston didn't fight. Okay. All right. It's, it's one thing to talk boldly, another to actually face down armed troops. Okay. But they didn't give up the Crofts, either. What they did do is they smuggled the Crofts onto an outbound ship and sent them to England which gets them hell and gone from the authority of the slave catchers, because England, there's no way in hell, and they can't invade a sovereign nation looking for their fugitives. So, violence was avoided. I have a feeling that this act is where the belief that police were founded to round up fugitive slaves got its start. And the police were not. I, I learned that during Officer Tatum's book, where he kind of did a brief breakdown of the history of policing. But quite frequently, urban legend has its foundation on a grain of truth, and I think this is that grain. I mean, marshals authorized to cross state lines to round up fugitive slaves with the full backing of the federal government fits that grain of truth, okay? Anyway, having achieved his compromise, piecemeal if not comprehensive, Fillmore didn't have much to do. I mean, the nation was more or less running smoothly. And at first, Fillmore did not really want to run for re-election himself. Ultimately, he became convinced that if he did not run, the Whigs would fall apart to sectionalism. So he had his name put forward as a candidate for the Whigs Convention. So did his Secretary of State, Daniel Webster. Now this was not like a backstabby thing. Fillmore had already advised his cabinet that he did not intend to run again, so it wasn't necessarily out of line for Webster to throw his name into the ring either, because Secretary of State was kind of a traditional stepping stone to the presidency at this point. Yeah, Fillmore was kind of had the backing of the, a large part of the Whigs, and then Webster had some backing, but not as popular. And then you've got Thurlow Weed, who throws in... Actually, wait, was this the one? Yes. This is the one where Weed, basically, having realized that um, he was screwed because Filmer was president, um, said, I give up, let them vote how they want to vote, and he took off for England. He went to England for like a year, or Europe for a year. It was, you know, across the pond. So he's over across the pond, and Seward can't let it go. He wants his chance at the White House, and he's never going to get it if Fillmore gets reelected. So he pushes for General Winfield Scott, who, after a horrifying 54 polls, gets the election, or, or the candidacy, excuse me, against Franklin Pierce for the 1852 presidential election, which Pierce eventually won. That's next month. Fillmore wasn't sure what he was going to do next. He wasn't sure if it was practical for him to return to law, having been president. He kind of floated the idea of a presidential pension. Not sure why. I mean, John Quincy Adams was serving in the House of Representatives at the same time Fillmore was. He could have easily stood for Congress again and likely would have won. 
And incidentally, in here, okay, you know what? Yeah, here's the other thing. He knows slavery is evil. When he was in Congress, why didn't he stand with John Quincy Adams about getting all those bills heard? Like, actually heard. Because that was Quincy's, that was the hill he chose to die upon, was getting the voices heard, getting the petitions heard, which were being shut out by a democratically run Congress. And Fillmore didn't join him. He was like, nope. Not my circus, not my monkeys. You do you, JQA. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Fillmore, I just, mm, I'm kind of, okay. But ultimately, it ended up not mattering what he did next, uh, whether he retired or went back to work. Uh, Initially, he was going to do a tour of the South with his wife, but she fell very ill during Pierce's inauguration and died about one month after Fillmore left office. So his tour of the South was delayed indefinitely. And he was bereft. I mean, they'd been together. This was 53. They got married in 26. They'd been together for almost 30 years. I mean, and, and he definitely loved his wife. So adding to that misery, a year later, his daughter Mary dies of cholera. So she was very young and very much the apple of his eye. She was like 24, I think. Gradually, though, Fillmore reaches the conclusion that his political career may not be over yet. The Whig Party is essentially dissolved at this point with a party splitting along sectional lines and Fillmore supporters created their own party the American Party which came to be known as the Know Nothing Party and then the Republican Party was headed by Seward and Weed and once the Know Nothing Party was able to kind of prove their political chops by fielding candidates in 54 and 55 elections who won and were elected uh, Fillmore put out that he would be willing to run for president again and then while his loyalists laid that groundwork Fillmore traveled to Europe for a year and visited with the crown heads of Europe. And former, and in kind of an odd historical note, both Fillmore and former President Martin Van Buren were in England at the same time and actually even attended some of the social events. And that kind of became a um, a, a social thing to do in England was to invite both of them to your party and have two former presidents at your social event in England. I guess that'd be cool today, but a pain in the ass because of all the uh, Secret Service guys. But when Fillmore returned, he did run for presidency in 1856 on the Know Nothing ticket. And um, he had a decent shot. I mean, during the four years of the Pierce presidency, the provisions of the 1850 Compromise had basically fallen apart, resulting in bleeding Kansas and the rising tensions of the new Republican Party, which... We'll go into more next month, obviously, under Pierce's presidency. But it led to rising tensions between the new Republican Party, which had the full backing of the abolitionists, and the Democratic Party. Only the extreme violence of the Republicans, isn't this interesting? It's like history has reversed itself. Now it's the extreme violence of the Democrats. But back then it was the Republicans had kind of scared the tar out of the centrists who might have voted for Fillmore, resulting in a Democratic win with President James Buchanan. And for the first time ever, a third party spoils the race. (laughs) So with that, Fillmore truly retired from politics and from the law. I I mean, he he was concerned about having enough in savings to support him and his wife, but when it's just him, uh, it's enough. He doesn't need to buy a big new house or anything like that, which he had briefly considered, you know, trying to live up to the grandeur of a former president. But he was more or less happy to just retire to the home he had shared with Abigail and live out his life. Um, and then in 1858, uh, well, sometime in 56, 57, he met widow Carolyn McIntosh, and in 1858 they married. So he did remarry, and she was quite wealthy. Now, 
I doubt her wealth had anything to do with his reason for marriage. I dislike his handling of the compromise and subsequent enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act, but that very enforcement kind of speaks to his character as being a man of his word. And I think that marrying for money would have been out of character for him, so I think that he probably did love her. And the fact that she was wealthy was incidental. I mean, she was wealthy enough that her estate was able to pay him $10,000 per year to manage it, which in today's money is approximately $350,000 per year. So that's pretty solid. She was rich. And he, they didn't just have carte blanche. The $10,000 a year was his salary for managing her estate. And he was accountable to her and responsible for every, reporting like every penny that went in or out of that estate. And he was good at it. I mean, he was comptroller of New York for a while and he was meticulous and honest with his bookkeeping. But managing her wealth required very little of his time, and he kind of spent the rest of his life basically as a man about town and the town patron of Buffalo, New York. He contributed his time, efforts, and money to building up art museums, various historical and scientific societies, libraries, and the only hiccup during this time occurred about three years into the Civil War when he criticized how the war was being handled, which did not go over well with the residents. They were... Uh, 100% behind Abraham Lincoln and the running of the Civil War. So he, he, he received some hate for that one. But once the war was over, his good graces were back and he lived quietly until he died on March 8, 1874. Overall, this was not a bad book. I mean, it was well written. The author had respect for his subject and the topic at hand. I mean, but no amount of respect can pretty up someone who goes against his own conscience for the greater good. Fillmore disliked slavery. He knew in his heart and soul that it was evil. Yet he was willing to sacrifice fugitive slaves on the false altar of national unity because of the greater good. I think he was probably a peaceful man who disliked conflict and so compromised his morals for the greater good. I'm going to beat that phrase to death because there are so many people who think, oh, we should all just do this for the greater good. Well, and the greater good is evil. I mean, maybe if he had read a little more history and a little less law, he'd have known that five of five for five, our first presidents disliked slavery, even though four of those five were slave owners. Um, those four were also sons of Virginia. So maybe if he had pushed their history of preferred liberty to all, things might have gone differently. Maybe if he had stood with John Quincy Adams on the, the Congress floor, the, the House of Representatives floor, and said, hey, these petitions need to be heard. This is what we're here for. This is our job. But he didn't. And um, so I mean, we're never going to know if things would have gone differently if he had. As the saying goes, he preferred peaceful slavery to dangerous liberty. And I have to place him near the bottom of my personal ranking. Uh, I'm putting him at 12 for now. I mean, just above Jackson, because Jackson really was shit. But below William Henry Harrison. I mean, William Henry Harrison's Indian policies were shit, but they were arguably not his. They were, they, he was following what he was directed to do by superior officers and Congress. Fillmore's inaction and enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act was entirely his own prerogative for the greater good. So that's it for this week. Uh, let me know what you think in the comments. I will see you guys next week. Bye.